Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Today we have a treat for you. We have Pastor Hal Thornton, one of our associate pastors, and the message today is The Greatness of God's Grace. We're looking at uh, today uh, the greatness of God's grace, uh, that wonderful experience of his grace, his love, his mercy. One of the one day, a few weeks ago, I was musing on this experience of grace and trying to find a way to think about it. And it came to me that this is a good way to think about grace. Grace is when you think about all the goodness that has come into your life that brings praise to God that you did nothing to deserve. You did nothing for it. It just came. It just came in your life. When goodness comes that really doesn't have a reason for, from anything that we've done. That's grace. And what we're talking about today over uh, in this specific service is the sense of the abundance of God's grace, uh, the overflowing qualities of God's grace that sustains and supplies all of our life. Let me read for you a portion that we're going to be looking at today. This is from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. When you look into the New Testament and you start looking at the writing of the author Paul, the Apostle Paul, you always come back to Romans because this is his most organized theological assertion of what the Christian faith is. You need to remember that Rome was a pagan environment. Rome was the place where emperors were worshipped. Mere humans were worshipped as divine. And then all of the trappings of the Roman Empire in terms of its excesses all originated from that center of the empire. So when Paul was writing, he was writing as profoundly and as definitively as he possibly could in these early chapters of Romans. And then toward the latter part of Romans, he gets very practical. But he always does that with a sense of we've got to have theological grounding. And then we'll talk about how to live what we believe. This is the writing of Paul from the fifth chapter of Romans. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all men sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. But, you always want to listen for that wonderful word, but, because it really changes you and says, now pay attention to this, but, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died 
by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one man's sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned uh, through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one man's trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many were made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. We give you thanks this day, O God, for your word. We thank you that it opens to us an understanding of your work within our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that this day. Open our minds to what you have for us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When we think about this text, you immediately come to this observation that this is a text where contrast works very strongly. The contrast is, on one side, the effects of sin, and on the other side, the effects of grace. What Paul is laying out is the reality that we do live in a fallen world. We do live in a world where sin is present, and in many lives, sin reigns, and it reigns to the ultimate end of death, both physically and, more importantly, spiritually. But what Paul is talking about is the gift of grace that leads to life and a generous, abundant life of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So the contrast is between sin and death and between grace and life. And what Paul is talking about is a powerful understanding for us to have in relation uh, to seeing the work of grace within our hearts and where it isn't present in the world around us. Many people live their life just wandering through the maze of human options. We've all lived long enough to think back and see these persons who are perhaps even persons of fiction, for fiction is always a reflection of the realities that are present in life. There has to be enough truth in it for you to believe that the story that's being told is real and you can get into it. It's a good story. We, ha we have this not only in literature, but we have it in the observations of the world around us in so many different places and in so many different ways. Have you met people whose only goal in life was to gain money and to gain more money? 
you ask a filthy rich person, how much money do you need? And he says, how much can I get? You know, I'm more. I need more. So they built all of their life around this. I happened one time to live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, when I was doing campus ministry with a person who was obsessed with this experience of gaining more money, more money. And I saw just how much control that theme had within his life and how he lived his life for the gaining of more money, more money. He had a hotel that he sold. He held the mortgage. The mortgage was due on the fifth of the month by two o'clock. At three o'clock, the brother was on the telephone telling the lawyer to start foreclosure because he hadn't gotten the check. The lawyer, of course, told him that's not really the way it works. You're not going to get an action of foreclosure in an hour's time. But he wanted it. And did it. he repeatedly did that every month when the guy was late. He run in a hotel and he had a cash flow issue, but he ultimately paid the, the month's mortgage. Strange, I thought. I've known people who were crazy for power. Now, power, you know, we've lived through these times where the theme of power is one of the uh, political motifs that seems to be present within our society. You could focus on a personality. You could focus on a party. You could focus on a movement. But you might think about people you've known in your life who were controlling and domineering and shut you down at every opportunity because it was their way. What's the phrase? My way or what? The highway. Those are power people and they're really hard to be around. They're really hard to be around. And then there in our culture, the theme of sex, uh, it, it is pervasive. They sell orange juice with sex. They sell socks with sex. They sell bricks with sex. They sell everything with a sexual overtone. You sort of get tired after a while and say, you know, uh, it just doesn't work. But for many, for many it does. Now that's the use of sex as a metaphor for life's joy and experiences that are good. But there are many people who build their lives around sex as a drive for their existence. We experience in the greater culture uh, this experience of people defining themselves by their sexual choices. It's just simply out there. That's what people are living for. That's really one of the manifestations of this experience that Paul called spiritual death. Have you known people who were characterized by relational wandering in life? They go from one relationship to another. They go from one experience of time with another person to another experience of time with another person. It happens so much in our culture now that we call it serial relationships. And because the concept of marriage has fallen out of favor in our culture, people just come together and you know, they bring their bag in the door and say, I'm living here now. Uh, cohabitation is a general theme within our culture. But what cohabitation produces is for many the experience of serial relationships. They just simply pick up their bags and go to another house. Pick up their bags and go to another relationship. Serial relationships. Uh, I heard the story about a person who, a man, he had 15 marriages before he died. 
And what they could say about this man after he died was, you know, he really did believe in marriage. He had 15 of them. And, and that's really a, uh, a lot. Elizabeth Taylor had eight. And I've read where it was said of her, as, as noble as she was in so many different ways, uh, that Liz really did believe in marriage. She had eight husbands. And one of them she married twice. She really did like this theme of marriage. Serial relationships. You know, people go from one place to the next. Uh, they look at this experience and they always seem to think the grass is greener in somebody else's yard. Let's just go to the next one. Spiritual wandering. Spiritual wandering is a reality within our lives. Uh, you hear people who are in public places talking about reincarnation. I was at an evangelistic coffee house years ago and I was doing my work at the tables and this guy who was uh, under the influence of Edgar Cayce, he sat down and he told me, you know, you're really talking to Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> and I said, oh yeah? He said, yes, I was once Thomas Jefferson. I said, well, okay, well, who are you now? <laughs> who am I talking to now? Try to get him out of that frame of reference into where we are right now because that's really the one that I have to bring before you as the one responsible to the Lord for the decisions you make this day. <clears throat> Pardon me. A few years ago, my wife and I, when we were doing camping, which thank God we do no longer. Hallelujah. I do love the wilderness. I do love being out there amongst trees and squirrels and all those other natural things, but I do like a holiday inn. So we went over to Fort Myers and we were staying in a, a county campground with friends. And adjacent to this campground was this place called uh, the Korash Unity Compound or Korash Unity Community. Well, we were fascinated by that. And so we went over there and began to walk around and see what just exactly is this Korash Unity uh, Center, this foundation that's there. What's going on? So as we looked, we realized that the Korash uh, Unity Group actually were a, a number of people who at the turn of the 19th century, around the 1900s, they left all their belongings in Chicago and followed this na man named uh, Cyrus Teed to Fort Myers. He had purchased a, a large parcel of land in what was the undeveloped part of the county down there, and he had set up a community. And the focus of this community was his spiritualistic teaching that death is a phantom. Death does not really exist. When we walk this earth and we seemingly die, we're coming back. We're coming back. Okay, that was what drew people to this. It was within the time culturally, both in the United States and internationally, where this spirit of spiritualism was flowing all around. People were having seances, trying to be in contact with the dead. They were using Ouija boards for spiritual messages. They were using fortune-telling cards and crystal balls. All of these things were out there for people to be in touch with those who had passed. Karish's position was, oh, that's just, we're, uh, we're coming back because we're not really dead. Well, you can understand when I tell you that that wasn't true. 
Mr. Koresh did indeed die. He ceased to live and he believed his theory so strongly that he said, do not bury me under the ground. Put me in a wash tub, a bathtub on the ground above the surface and I'll put my body in that tub and I'm coming back. That's what they said in the literature of the Chorus Unity uh, group. Well, they did. He died. They put him in the tub and he laid there for weeks after weeks. And finally, the county got wind of it, literally. And they came to the property and told them under no uncertain terms, this body will be buried. It will be properly buried underground. We're not asking you to deny any of your beliefs that you have used to assemble yourselves, but this body is not going to stay above the ground any longer. Bury this body. You know, spiritual wandering. People do this. You, you, if you listen to people talk, I had my conversation with Thomas Jefferson. Shirley MacLaine has claimed to have been any number of people in her previous lives. Who knows? She can have some more. Who can prove? And Koresh said death was a mystery, was a, uh, an unreal phenomena. <laughs> but they did put him in the ground. And by the way, he's still there. Whatever remains of him after his sojourn in the tub is still in the ground. And the Koresh Society, within a number of years, disbanded and just sort of left to their own little ways. And people who had moved there got jobs in the community, lived on the grounds because it was a nice, you know, conference center. They had nice houses, but they lived there and lived out their life. And, but Mr. Karash's grave was right there for them to see. People live in this experience of death with this wandering through the maze of life, wandering through the relational journey of broken promises and live with spiritual hunger, trying to find what really is life all about. But in grace, what Paul is talking about, the abounding grace of God, which is greater than all we could imagine. It is God's unbounded goodness toward us. And we understand that this is the way in which God has given us to live. What do we find with God's gift of grace? We find relationships. We find the opportunity to dedicate ourselves to the love of God, to be people who live for the glory of God, who live to please Him, and who live to be a part of His work within this world. It's not a motivation that comes back to us to build us up but it's a motivation that comes by grace to lift the name of God high, to lift the name of Jesus high, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit together. It's the name uh, that fills our life with the power of deep devotion. We are called to love God with what? All of our heart, our mind, our body, and our soul, and then to love our neighbors as ourself. So we live a life that is gained by grace with the opportunity to serve God in worship, in caring, and in being a part of other people's life. We're the people, by the grace of God, 
who build other people up. We want to make a difference in someone else's life for God's sake. That's how we're called to live. And that's how we want to live. We want to be the people who are also filled with the relationships that are full of forgiveness and full of the hope for what people can become. For all that people can become in the power of God's love, grace, and mercy in Jesus Christ. That's what we believe. We believe that God forgives us as far as east is from west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. And we share in this experience together. And we share in the fullness of his work of grace within our life. Now let me tell you something that's not altogether terribly flattering for me. When I was in college, uh, I had come from a very... Uh, confusing religious environment. They were Christian people, but they just really didn't know how to teach the faith. And I was really, uh, I'd come out of that. I, I, I gravitated toward Christians who read the Bible and who understood what it said and taught it. So I went to visit years after that time with a dear lady who was a part of our fellowship. I went to see her and when I was doing pastoral ministry at that time in a church while I was in seminary. And as I was visiting with her, uh, <laughs> Myra said, you know how, when I first met you back when we were at Old Dominion University together, you know, the only thing I could think about you was you were a mess. You were just a flat out mess. You were all over the place. But look, now you're sitting in my living room and you're a pastor. You've learned the faith. You've learned a pattern of care for others. And you're not the person that you were when I first met you. You're a pastor now. You're a Christian who's serving the Lord in the lives of other people. And that brought to my mind the words from my college professor or college preacher who said, you know, I to all of us young Christians, I don't believe so much in where you are right now as I believe and what God can do in your life as you follow him. That's what it means to be living in abundant grace. A life that is full of the opportunity to grow, a life that is full of the opportunity to have relationships that make you the person that honors Jesus Christ in all you do and say in relationship with other people. And also, we're the people who believe in the promises of God for eternal life. Many of us learned as children, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have what? Eternal life. We believe in eternal life in Jesus Christ as God is alive and real to us now so that when we pass through the portal of death, we enter into the fullness of God's presence because he has promised us eternal life, life that is in him, life that is with him, life that is with the assembled saints from all the ages who have trusted in Jesus Christ as God's son who came to bring life who came to bring what? Life and life abundant. Who came to bring what? Abundant grace. This is what God's grace means to us. And as I said earlier, when you think about grace, how do you define it? How do you define it? It's really the goodness of God 
that comes into your life through nothing that you have done, but only because of his great love and mercy toward us in Jesus Christ. This is abundant grace. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks this day uh, for the opportunity. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.